Mindfulness Mode, 246. There are tendencies that we have. We are in the grip of very powerful forces like desire. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Thanks again, Mindful Tribe, for joining me here. So great to have you with us as always. Last time my guest was a mind reader, a mentalist. It was fascinating learning from some of his inside secrets and methods. If you have not heard Jonathan Pritchard's interview yet, you'll want to go back and check out episode 245. And that's mindfulnessmode.com slash 245. Are you thinking of possibly launching your own podcast? You will need a host, a place to upload your episodes. Podbean is terrific. That's the host I use for Mindfulness Mode. And it's been around for about 10 years. The pricing is super competitive. It's $9 a month no matter how much content you upload. And they have great stats as well. You can help support Mindfulness Mode and get a month free with my affiliate link. So go to podbean.com slash podbeanmm for Mindfulness Mode. Today's guest is a psychotherapist a clinical assistant professor in psychiatry at the University of Vermont College of Medicine, and he's a workshop leader at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Sit back and enjoy Arnie Kozak, Mindful Tribe. Okay, Mindful Tribe, I'm really excited today. I've received this book, and it's an amazing book, and I have the author with us today, Dr. Arnie Kozak, and it's great to have you with us, Dr. Kozak. Thanks so much for joining me here. You're welcome, and it's, it's great to be here. Uh, Dr. Kozak, I just want to uh, ask you, first of all, are you in mindfulness mode? <laughs> <laughs> if I'm not, I will be soon. Okay. Well, Dr. Arnie Kozak is an author, as you know, psychotherapist, and a teacher of Buddhism. He's written a number of books about mindfulness and Buddhism and has recently penned this new book I just held up called Buddhism 101. Back in the 80s, before mindfulness was as popular as it was today in our culture, Dr. Kozak traveled to India and he became immersed in Buddhism and mindfulness. And he took the Bodhavista vows from His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Now he shares his insights with the world through his extensive writing and training. So why don't we start, uh, Arnie, with what mindfulness means to you? Well, that's a good question, Bruce. And it really means the difference between reality and imagination. And so what I mean is when we're mindful, we're paying attention to what is, what is, what's actually happening. And that's, that's reality. That's the experience of our senses. It's what we're doing in the moment. The rest is, is fantasy. It's imagination. It's imagining the future, recollecting the past. Uh, getting caught up in our opinions about the present, liking and disliking. And, and so mindfulness is really when we're, we're in contact with reality as it is. And we really create stories that we live by, don't we? 
And uh, so it's so important to identify whether it's a story, whether it's some sort of reality, whatever. Now, you wrote a chapter in the book on Zazen, the heart of Zen practice. It talks about seated meditation and you went into detail on posture and breathing. And I just want to know if you'll share some insight about this aspect of Buddhism with us. Well, sure. And, and Zazen just simply means sitting meditation. Yes. So in the Zen tradition, uh, which is where this uh, has this term comes from and where it's been developed is, is really just a very basic uh, meditation technique. And uh, basically, you know, it, the, the, the invitation, if you will, is to sit. Right. And that sounds yes. silly or, or obvious, but, right. but really again, going back to the reality versus imagination, we add all sorts of things to just simply sitting. We're thinking, we're imagining, we're telling stories to ourselves. So it really is a challenge just to sit and experience what it's like to be sitting unadorned by other aspects of the mind. So, um, you know, that's, there's really not a lot of instructions in Zen practice usually. Uh, and this comes out of the Soto Zen tradition. So really it's, you know, you just sit there long enough and some of these other mental activities tend to fall away. And uh, so I practice Zen and, and, but when I'm in a Zen situation, I usually do my uh, Vipassana practice or just your insight meditation, mindfulness types of, uh, in the sense it's awareness of breathing, it's awareness of body, it's awareness of just everything that's happening. Well, I, I find it really interesting because, yes, it's very simple. Mindfulness, there's something very simple about it, and Buddhism has a very simple element. And this book is called Buddhism 101, but you packed a tremendous amount of information in here, which is very helpful. But was it difficult to, to scale this down into one book to make it Buddhism 101? <laughs> uh, it was, and actually my publisher did most of the heavy lifting. So this is, um, uh, a lot of this is excerpted from a, a previous longer book, the Everything Buddhism book. And uh, so a lot of it has been excerpted and repurposed for this, this particular format. So, but there was a lot of selection. Uh, and hopefully we've gotten to the to the essential things, the things that are most important or most useful for folks in, in, that, in that book. I know that you really enjoy sharing the word of Buddhism with others, and I know that you're a workshop leader at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies in Massachusetts. Can you describe what it's like working at this retreat center, what it's like for the people who go there to learn? Well, the Berry Center is a very, very special place um, for myself, and I'm sure for many, many people. And it's right, um, it's adjacent on the adjacent property to the Insight Meditation Society, which is the premier um, uh, residential retreat, meditation retreat, the Insight Meditation Retreat Center on the East Coast. So there's this um, concentration of um, of Buddhist or of mindfulness energy there. And the Barry Center is devoted to the study of the Dharma, of the Buddhist teachings. And so it has an extensive library. It's a, renov it's a, a renovated farmhouse, uh, which is very in a very beautiful setting. And it also has a meditation hall. So 
just just being at the Barry Center is in itself uh, a very wonderful experience, um, very soothing, and the opportunity to really go inside oneself. And then at a workshop, we do uh, a mixture of, of lecture, discussion, some meditation, and uh, other types of exercise, uh, depending on the theme of the program. So, so are most people there for a short period of time, for 10 days or less, or are many people there for extended periods? So at the Barry Center, people come for particular courses or workshops. So I, I usually do, it's a weekend workshop from Friday night to Sunday, but next door at the at the IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, people will come, the courses are longer, the retreats are maybe seven, they have weekend retreats, but they have seven day retreats, they have 10 day retreats, they have even a three month retreat that runs through the fall. And there's also now, there's a, a place called the Forest Refuge, which is for self-directed retreats. And so they built, built a beautiful facility there where you can go and really set your own schedule and do your own. And there you, you spend at least a week, but they encourage you to spend the week. People spend weeks and weeks sometimes. That sounds amazing. Now, I know you traveled back in 85. You went to India and you were with the Dalai Lama. Can you tell us about that, what that experience was like? Well, it was me in this intimate audience with His Holiness with uh, about 250,000 other people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, it was a very big festival um, ceremony. The Kala Chakra Tantra was the occasion for this, and it was in Bodh Gaya, India, which is uh, one of the Buddhist um, uh, holy pil pilgrimage sites, the mm -hmm. place where the historical Buddha uh, purportedly uh, reached his awakened state. Um, and so... Um, uh, Bodh Gaya's Bodh, the, the the place of awakening. That would mm -hmm. how that would translate. And so I was one of maybe approximately a thousand Westerners who had traveled there. Um, there were ten thousand monks I heard, and about two hundred fifty thousand Tibetans in exile who came uh, to visit. And the first week or so, the his Holiness was reading from Shanti Deva's Guide to a Bodhisattva's Way of Life, and uh, so this very important historical text. And at the end, we all took those Bodhisattva vows, which, in a sense, means we're we're going to commit to working towards our own awakening and our own enlightenment as the best means to serve humanity in the world. As the best to to uh, you know devote ourselves to that. And then after that, there was this three-day intensive uh, Kala Chakra ceremony, um, which was very, you know, we were building these mandalas and doing all this imagery in our, uh, you know, deities and all kinds of wild stuff. So um, that that part didn't really speak to me as much, and, and I really never pursued Tibetan Buddhism formally after that, but certainly doing the, the teachings on the the Bodhisattva way of life was was very important and influential in, in, in my career as a psychotherapist and, and so forth. So, At that point, did you believe that you would probably do a lot of writing and sharing of all this knowledge that you were learning at that time? I don't think so. I mean, I knew I wanted to teach probably in a college setting. I thought I was probably going to wind up being an academic. At that point, so you know, maybe write, the writing at that time was probably more envisioned as 
scholarly articles and, and that sort of thing. But it wasn't until later that I started thinking about writing, writing books for a wider audience. Right, I see. I'd like to go back to when you were a child, when you were eight or nine years old. Was there anything in your life that made you think back then that you would want to follow the path that you ended up following? Wow. So, you know, the, how we get to where we are is determined by so many, so many different things. Yes. And uh, so <clears throat> I know that at that time, meditation wasn't a completely alien concept to me because this was in the 70s and TM, Transcendental Meditation, was very popular and my mother was practicing that. So, you know, that may have been one of the one of the influences that, okay, when I encountered meditation and Buddhism and um, yoga practices later when I was in college, it, it wasn't wasn't so alien to me. I was able to kind of cross that threshold. You know, it, it's interesting at that age, Buddha had a very profound and um, uh, forward, forward uh, seeking vision at that point. He had this spontaneous meditation experience under a rose apple tree. Uh, and that he actually remembered that experience late, much later in his life when he was struggling to figure out uh, his path. So um, but I didn't have any experience exactly. <laughs> not quite as, not quite as uh, dramatic for me. I want to talk about the four noble truths considered to be the heart of Buddhism. And I know that the Buddha used a metaphor that his teachings were a raft to carry the seeker across the river of samsara. Can you tell us more about that? Well, the Buddha used a lot of different metaphors. Yes. Uh, really... Um, uh, and, and the Four Noble Truths are themselves comprised of many, uh, of several important metaphors. And the, the raft metaphor is, is also interesting in that, um, so the Buddha, he taught, he had a long teaching career, like 45 years of, of teaching. And he also knew that people uh, tended to um, want to, look up to authorities and become dogmatic about things. And he really didn't want people to follow his teachings because he said them. He really wanted them to experience them for themselves and to right. really figure it out for themselves and not to be doctrinal and dogmatic. And, and so the river, the raft metaphor is, you know, we, we need help. And, and that help can come from meditation practice or from insight or study from or community of supportive people, but once you, you you get that support, once you cross the river, you don't carry the raft with you. He's like, get rid of the raft. You know, don't carry it around, and and then you know, then you have to deal with that. So that that was an important aspect of of uh, of that metaphor. But the four noble truths. Um, or the four ennobling tasks, as I kind of uh, offer different translations of that, uh, were his very first teaching and really the very core of his teaching and, uh, and pretty much contain all the other teachings in this little bundle there. Right, right. Well, you, uh, you have a chapter on dependent origination. And you mentioned that this is the most original and radical of the Buddha's teachings. And to explain it, you tell a story about walking down the street on automatic pilot. 
Uh-huh. And I want to know if you'll just share a little bit more about that. Uh, and this was the, um, um, and, and this is where I, I, you know, walking walking down the street, you you smell something like a pizza, and you go and uh, and then you wind up sitting at a bar and drinking too much and yeah. having a you know, hangover. And you know the 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 basic, well, the, the radicalness of of the Buddhist teachings. One is that actions have consequences, and that we're responsible for our actions. And he was saying, really, you can't blame it on fate, you can't blame it on gods, you can't blame it on other people, really your own actions. And that includes, and importantly, uh, your thoughts, your feelings, your intentions. These are going to have, these are bear fruit, maybe immediately or down the road or at some point. Um, but actions have consequences. And that means, one, that we can take responsibility and do something about it, that it's, there are tendencies that we have. We are in the grip of very powerful forces like desire. And you know, we, we pull the things, pull pleasurable things towards us and push unpleasant things away from us. And those are very powerful forces. I mean, he didn't understand evolutionary biology or psychology, but he had was basically on the same track to say that you know we are compelled by these forces yet if we make an effort and understand how the mind works then we don't have to be beholden to those forces that we can understand that you know if i if i think this then i'm more inclined to do this if i do this take this action then this these types of things might happen and to really encourage us towards being more skillful rather than and to know the difference between what might be a skillful thought or unskillful thought or skillful action unskillful action right i know that dogs are a part of your life arnie and i wonder if you can talk about that is there a a mindfulness element to dogs that you enjoy in your day-to-day life uh there is and and currently they're sleeping but you know that could change at any moment yeah (laughs) if somebody comes to the door or something happens um, well, there are a couple of things, and I'm actually uh, working on a book about dogs now. And, are you? Yeah, and uh, and so that I've been thinking a lot about that in a, in a more formal way. Um, but there there are two things that I, I can comment on. One is play. So there was an incident that happened with one of my dogs, Sumi, uh, a while back, where she got tangled up in a cord in the back of my uh, truck in the back seat, and you know, it was like it wrapped itself around her paw and she was in pain and I, it was hard to get off. And she was basically it was like traumatized and freaking out. Her paw was fine because we got to it soon enough and got home and discovered, you know, she's not injured. Other just just shaken up. And, and I just picked up a stick and threw it into the field. And there she was like, OK, now it's time to play. Right. Yeah. And and then. Really, she was able to um, transition out of that experience, right? I mean, she was in pain and uncomfortable one moment, and then she was playing the next. And I think that, you know, I mean, we tend to idealize our dogs. You know, they are, they're in the grips of those same powerful forces that we are. Although I don't think they can tell the same stories to themselves that we do, and that maybe gives them an advantage to being mindful and in the moment. So they get scared, they get frustrated, they have, they want their dinner when they want it, they want their treats. And 
when they don't get things, I mean, this was really apparent with my uh, my previous dog, uh, who was a big Rhodesian Ridgeback. You know, he would want something, and then when it became apparent that he wasn't going to get it, he didn't complain and moan and, you know, feel bad about himself. He would just go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> So they're able to, I think, to let go of things yeah. Uh, yeah. a bit more readily, probably because they can't tell those stories. They can't sustain a sense of self, that sense of me that lives in imagination the way we do. I just don't think they have that cognitive uh, capacity. Right. Yeah. I have a West Thailand Terrier at home and she's much the same as you describe. You know, she's a lot of fun. She loves to play. She's got tons of energy. But I really feel I learn a lot about mindfulness from her as well, just by observing her. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And I know you also love snowboarding, and I love skiing. And you're in Vermont, I believe, so you've yeah. got a lot of places to enjoy snowboarding. Is that mindful for you? Uh, it certainly can be. And, sir, you know, we think about there's an aspect of mindfulness that's absorption. We're just absorbed into an activity, and we're not doing any kind of extracurricular thinking around that. And, and so snowboard really lends itself uh, to that. And there was a story that I actually put in my first book from, um, you know, winter uh, long ago where I was snowboarding in the woods and I was navigating these steeps and through these trees. And then I, you know, I did that successfully. And then I came to this flatter part where the trees were less dense and then I just started thinking. I started imagining as having these imaginary conversations. And I, in these relative flats, I managed to tangle myself up with a couple of tr small trees and injure myself. Mm. So that clearly was not being very mindful. <laughs> no. Yeah. no. Uh, Arnie, I want to ask you about your own personal meditation and what it's like, yeah. how long you spend and, and what your meditation looks like. Well, it varies uh, depending on what's going on in my life. Uh, sometimes I will sit for briefer periods, a couple times a day. Other times I'll do um, so anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour uh, of meditation um, I will do. And my method is, um, is again, it's what it would call it inside meditation or Vipassana meditation or mindfulness meditation. So I will start, always start with, well, with my posture, I'm, I'm going to get into a, and having sat Zen, I, I will be attentive to my posture. So I'll, I'll get into a dignified posture and then I'll start with my breath. You know, I will just attend to the, the sensations of my breathing. And sometimes my mind is settled and, and then I'll open that to awareness of my entire body. And then from that place, if I continue to be settled, then I can watch how thoughts arise, how emotions arise, sounds arise, other things are happening, and I'm just just trying to experience that as it is. Sometimes, though, the mind is very unsettled and is just into a lot of anticipation, planning the day, telling stories. Then I will narrow my focus. So I'll just come more tightly on the breath and just try to really keep it to the breath and do a concentration type of meditation and that We'll, we'll keep that, you know, it's one thing to notice, oh yeah, there's, um, there's a story arising, there's some pull tugging me towards something or other, and then, 
but it's another thing to be carried away for, by it for like five minutes, right? <laughs> right? And like come back. I mean, the key is always to come back. And that's what we're really, we're training ourselves to work with our minds when we practice. It's not really about achieving any kind of certain state. Like I don't necessarily want to try to get relaxed or uh, de-stress, although those things might happen, but I really just try to work, exercise my attention and work with my mind. Oh, that's good to know. And I want to mention that I've worked in bullying prevention for some time, and I'd like to ask a question about that. Do you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference? Well, you know, if we think about bullying, so we can think about it from the perspective of the person who's bullied or the perspective of the bullier. Yes. Right. Now, of course, if the bullier were exposed to mindfulness, they probably wouldn't engage in the bullying types of behavior, right? But that's maybe not what you're, we can't necessarily expect them to say, oh, okay, I'm going to just, you know, be mindful and uh, (laughs) appreciate, you know, that this, this action is not skillful. It's hurting you. It's harming this person that I'm bullying. And it's also harming myself, really, that we understand that our negative emotions like anger or, um, your cruelty, you know, that's, there may be some sort of sadistic pleasure, but it's underneath it is a lot of anguish and, and, and uh, difficulties, you know, those actions have consequences. Yeah. So from the perspective of the bullied, you know, um, again, being in the present. So, I mean, taking whatever action we can take to avert the bullying, you know, that's one thing. Um, but as things are happening, to just be attending to, okay, this is happening, and versus this is happening to me. So when we tend to elaborate things into stories, it tends to compound as a bad, can make a bad situation worse. So, you know, not to just like grin and bear it, but just to, to notice, you know, okay, this was, this happened, this was, a, you know, here's what I felt, here's, um, here's what I thought. But to, to not elaborate it into, you know, stories, I must be a bad person, I'm weak, I'm all of this. The other, the other element is more along the lines of compassion. For, and this is, of course, pretty tough for a kid to, or anybody really, kid or adult, to, to navigate, but to understand that the bullier, the person who's bullying, they're acting out of their own suffering, Right. They're not doing it. I mean, even if they do it on purpose or do get some pleasure out of it, they're they're misguided in some sense. And so there could be compassion. Um, that's that's sort of the advanced curriculum. <laughs> yes, is to uh, yeah. is to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you five quick answer questions as we right. begin to wrap things up. The first one is this: Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness? Just one? <laughs> Just one. I'm sure there are many. There are many. Um, well, in terms of practice, it's Larry Rosenberg, who is, um, uh, has been a teacher, a longtime teacher at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Society in, in Cambridge, Mass. And he's written some wonderful books. And, you know, so I've, and I've learned a lot, a lot from Larry over the years, and especially early on in my meditation career. So... And how has mindfulness affected your emotions? <laughs> well, um, it certainly has made me more aware of them over the years. 
um, people tend to regard me as being mellow, even when I don't necessarily feel that way. Um, but it has it has had a mellowing effect on me. And not to say that it's expunged all of my negative emotions, like anger. And, and I certainly write about these things in my books. You know, okay. My mindfulness uh, lapses. Uh, but on the whole, it, it's helped me to be uh, more at peace, more uh, what we call equanimity, to just be more accepting of things and to be more engaged with things. So, you know, the highs are higher, the lows are, are lower because, you know, we feel it more. So just trying to be present to to my experience. So. Well, you've touched on breathing. Could you just sum it up and tell us a little bit more about how breathing has a, has been influenced by your mindfulness? Well, you know, we really don't need to think about breathing. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> elemental process. Um, although there are ways of breathing that are going to be helpful and beneficial. So if we get very tight, you know, we're not letting a lot of air into our lungs, then that's going to tend to make us more tense and anxious and uh, feel stressed. So um, over time, and, and I've been doing this for over 30 years now that um, do what we call diaphragmatic breathing. So my natural breath, my regular breath is, is a very deep breath and, um, and it tends to slow. And when I practice, uh, when I do the meditation practice, sometimes my breath becomes almost imperceptible, just very, very, very subtle. So usually I know when I'm breathing and everything is flowing and then, uh, you know, I can come back to that. Um, the more you practice, the more readily you can come back when you're off off the mark. So that's that's. But you know, breathing is our is our friend. Yes, it yeah, sure is. Sure. And uh, you know, I'm going to list all of these things that you're mentioning, and of course, including your book Buddhism 101. But what book would you recommend that could help people with mindfulness besides the ones you've written? Yeah, well, of course, I am a little partial to <laughs> Of course. And, um, you know, I'll mention, I mean, there are so many good books and so many authors. I mean, anything by John Kabat-Zinn, Pema Chodron. Uh, she writes from a Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but it's very much in the field of mindfulness. And, and uh, as I said, Larry Rosenberg and um, uh, Tara Brock, Elisha Goldstein, these are all people who are just... Uh, Really wonderful, Tony. Uh, Tony Bernard is another great writer. So there's just, I mean, you can there's so many, many options, wonderful options out there. So companions for for people on their path. Now, are there any apps that you would recommend that could help people with mindfulness or meditation or anything like uh, that? I'm. Um, Generally speaking, I'm not a Luddite. I, I embrace technology and, and, and consume it, but I really have not done a lot of exploration of the apps. I know that they're out there. I know that, that having that on your phone can be maybe a better way to use your phone. Um, but the, 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 app, the only app I use for meditation is the timer on my right. phone, uh, and that you know just bounds, bounds my meditation. But... Um, I know a lot of people do get benefit out of them. So um, people can explore and experiment and, and see what works for them. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I want to ask you, how can Mindful Tribe reach out to you and connect with you? Well, you can find me um, at my website, uh, arniekozak.com or exquisitemind.com. Find me on the on social media, Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram, and, and uh, LinkedIn and whatever, you know, all those uh, outlets are and they're on my website. You can they can connect with me. Sure, yeah. sure. I'll put those links in our show notes as well. Mindfulnessmode.com. So, thanks okay. again for joining us here and all your insight and for writing this terrific book. And you're welcome. Um, and it was great to um, be on your show. And thank you for doing this work and and hosting the show. It's great my, to be here. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Arnie. Okay. You're welcome. Bye. 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 Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.